Hello, it's Monday, November the 1st, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up... The Beatles, the Fab Four, a new attraction, £2 million worth of money for a new visitor attraction to the Beatles. Guess where? In Liverpool, of course. Why are so many people quitting their jobs in Britain? Up to a third are changing jobs. It's all linked, of course, to the pandemic. France have issued a deadline tomorrow for Britain to issue licences. And what are they going to do if we don't? Stand up to them, Prime Minister. But first, we're talking COP26. The Prince of Wales has opened it. The Prime Minister has spoken. Uh, Half the world leaders are there. But, of course, one person isn't there. The leader of China. The world's worst polluter. The world's eyes are on Glasgow as leaders from around the world gather for the much-vaunted COP26. The Climate Change Conference runs until 12th of November and we expect to see leaders taking on ambitious plans to combat climate change. But what will we see, do we think, at the end of the two weeks? Professor Martin Seeger is co-director of the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and Environment at Imperial College London, and he joins me now. Professor Seeger, this is the biggest conference since Paris. They were all required to come back. We should have seen them last year, but because of COVID, it's this year. What's going to be the big difference, do you think, between the ambition this week and to, to what we saw in Paris in 2016? In many ways, this is a, a follow-up to the yeah. Paris Climate Summit. So, so Paris was um, the 21st conference of the parties. And up until then, you know, we'd had 20 before and we hadn't really reached an international agreement on climate change, not one that was in any way meaningful. So what was changed in Paris is rather than design something that everybody could sign up to, the Paris succeeded because individual nations were able to put on the table what they were committing to do in terms of carbon reduction targets. They were individually pressed to to work harder, but nonetheless, those were the contributions, nationally determined contributions, that's what they call them. And the Paris Climate Agreement was a summing up of all those NDCs. And if we implement them in full, which is being generous, I should say, but if we did implement them in full, we would get something like 2.7 degrees of warming by 2100. That's nearly three degrees warmer than it should be and was before 1850. So what this... Uh, conference of the parties is all about the 26th one is uh, always five years it's now six years after Paris, Paris as you quite rightly said was to revise those nationally determined contributions to ratchet up the ambition to make it more compatible with a 1.5 degree outcome by, by 2100 and that means a significant increase in carbon reduction targets by all nations of the world to, to make it so. We are a long way from that target, I should say. Now, in our national plan, we're committed to carbon reduction, carbon elimination by 2050. The yes. big beasts, the big beasts, so you could argue, China, Brazil, 2060. Is there any hope, do you think, Professor, that this conference this week will see any compromise by countries like Brazil and China? Yeah, well, let's take, I can answer that in a second, but let's, let's go to the United Kingdom. Because yeah. Uh, Having a target and a a pledge, uh, legally binding though it is, doesn't necessarily mean that we're on track to delivering it. We are behind where we need to be in the United Kingdom. Uh, The government uh, just uh, last week issued its net zero strategy, which is pretty good in terms of words, covering all sectors and doing the right things. But the the amount of investment that will be released by government is about, uh, and again generously, about 1% of what is needed. So the UK government's position is to mobilize uh, private investment into this that will make up the difference. 
Now, uh, it could happen, and it has happened in some uh, sectors, like in renewable energy. There's a lot of private investment that's gone into that, and the costs have come right down. So the government cites that as being the way forward. But there are plenty of initiatives using the same type of model that haven't worked out at all. And, and I'm quite concerned that if, if this is the only way to deliver net zero in the United Kingdom, it is risky. So even though we've got good ambition and good statements, it, it's by far from certain that we know where the money to deliver that ambition is, is going to come from. It, it, it's not going to come from government under under Conservative Party, at least. Now, overseas, different political structures and systems and cultures. And so we have to understand what's being pledged by, say, China um, in a way that's different to the sort of culture that we have in the United Kingdom. Usually what happens in the in the UK is we, we over uh, we're over ambitious. We don't meet, meet our targets. You know, that's that's the usual way of, of, of how things are in the United Kingdom. And you argue about that. But that's, that's generally the fact in China. Often it's the other way around. There is a, an under prediction of what is possible and then it ex- exceeds it. And uh, people say well, how wonderful we are in, in able to do that. So um, we have to understand there's a different culture uh, at play here. Now, the Chinese pledge on the table at the moment is to uh, peak their carbon emissions by 2030 and then to reduce them to zero by sometime around 2060. Now that's that's going to be concerning because China emits 28% of all the global ambi- uh, emissions right now. And so if they were just to say we're going to continue to increase carbon dioxide up until 2030, if that is true, then it's going to be very challenging for the world to, to meet its 1.5 degree target because to do so, we need about 40 to 50% of global emissions to come down by 2030. 30, not not still be emitting as much by by that stage. So it's a real concern, yeah. And, and do we know, um, they say they're going to peak their carbon emissions by 2030. So do we know how much more they're going to pump out? We know they're going to be doing a lot more, uh, doing a lot more stuff with coal until 2030. But do we yeah, have any right. comprehension of the scale of it? Yeah, well, I, it, it, I don't think it'll be too much, actually, because there is um, a, a, a thought that the 2030 peak is quite a modest um, right. Uh, uh, guarantee, really. So, so what could happen is is that is brought forward, and I, I know a lot of people will be working hard with Chinese negotiators to try and push that forward to to 2025, uh, and in and in which way it, it then allows one point the 1.5 degree target to be more possible than it would do. You know, if, if the biggest emitter on the planet does not bring down its carbon emissions by 2030, that's going to be that's going to make 1.5 very very challenging to meet. If we don't reach this target of 1.5, what do you think it means for for the world, the planet, the environment, for living in the United Kingdom? Yeah, so the Grantham Institute at Imperial College did did a piece of work for the UK government a little while back on on what was called avoiding dangerous climate change. And uh, there are uh, lots of ways that that people in the United Kingdom can appreciate this problem now in a way that maybe 10 years ago they they wouldn't have been too familiar with. And that's with heat waves, uh, it's with flooding, um, it's with increased storms, uh, and you don't have to look too far to, to notice that the, the massive downpours that we had mm. this last summer yeah. in Germany, in Belgium, also in London, in New York, the ridiculous heat waves that we saw in northwest United States and southwest Canada. Canada, uh, yeah, the amazing. One, yeah, the, well, nearly 50 degrees. It's, it's mm. astonishing. A couple of years ago, we had nearly 40 degrees in the Arctic Circle. You know, it, it, this is happening regularly. These extreme weather events were were predictable and predicted by scientists and that's under 1.1 degrees of warming that's where we are at the moment yeah. so it doesn't really take too much to work out that we're in in for an awful lot more extreme weather that's going to make 
our ability to grow food for ourselves more challenging. It's going to make international trade more challenging. It's going to increase geopolitical tensions uh, and disruption. And we can. And the great thing is, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we we can find a way forward to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, to make this planet far more sustainable, so that we can live in it in a in a better way, and that our children and those who come after them can do also. All right, that's Professor Martin Seeger. He's co-director of the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and Environment at Imperial College London. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free, in full, along with our other podcasts and video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So the fishing row between the UK and France continues. A British fishing boat is still detained in French waters and France has warned they're going to bar UK boats and tighten custom checks from tomorrow unless Britain issues more licences for small boats in British waters. The Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, has responded. She's rejected the deadline and demands France stop threatening Britain. She's also said President Macron is using this and it's as an attempt to gain voters in his upcoming presidential election next year. Joining us is the Daily Mail's chief political correspondent, Harriet Lyne. Harriet, I think she's right, isn't she? Liz Truss, this is all about Macron's re-election and we saw the French Prime Minister in that letter to the European Commission saying that the British government has to be punished for Brexit. Essentially, I think there's two things there. It's about the signal it sends to the rest of the EU and leaving leaving the bloc if they're considering it then actually it's not that easy is what uh, France wants uh, them to think. But equally, yes, as you referenced, there is a French election coming up and fishermen's votes uh, and all of those coastal areas which are affected by fishing is incredibly important uh, for Mr Macron. And so there's no doubt, to a degree, this row is about being a bit of a pawn in that election fight. Who do we believe? Because the British say uh, they've given 98% of the licences. The French deny it. Uh, The British say the 55 fishermen who want to uh, operate in waters around Jersey have been unable to show evidence that they'd fished in those waters in the four years before uh, because they've apparently lost the paperwork if it ever existed. But, I mean, do we, we, uh, as British people, think our side are telling the truth and the others aren't? I think there's clearly a difference of opinion, isn't there? There's, the UK says we've issued 98% of licences to the vessels which applied. France says they've only been issued to 50% uh, which are entitled to them. So there's a, clearly a very large gap between both. Uh, I think it's quite interesting that to gain a licence, you only have to, have, you have to prove you fished in UK territorial waters for one day over the past four years. So it's yeah. quite a loose sort of definition I think yeah. of entry um, but that said Britain has also upped the sort of requirement for GPS type tracking on those vessels yeah. some more traditional boats clearly don't have those um, it's a hard one to know who to believe uh, obviously both sides are very entrenched on it it's an irony, isn't there, that we're rowing about um, fishing rights and f- who's got the right paperwork. And yet over in Northern Ireland, um, uh, Britain is at war with the European Commission because they say the European Commission, the EU, has swamped traders on the border with all this paperwork. And the government, uh, the EU Commission is now, as part of the negotiations, we understand, Harriet, offering to get rid of 80% of the regulations and the paperwork, which makes you wonder why any of it was there in the first place. 
Yeah, although crucially, those talks on the protocol are still ongoing. They're yeah. starting up again today. We're expecting Lord Frost and Maris Efrikovic, the European Commission Vice President, to meet uh, on Friday to check in on the progress on that. Mm. But the key stumbling block is on the European Commission, uh, European Court of Justice, yeah. uh, which we have not seen any movement from the EU on. Yeah. Uh, and that, of course, you know, it, that's a pretty it's almost sacrosanct to them, isn't it, really, for them? Yeah. What do we think, just finally, Harriet, there'll be some compromise for Britain on the European Court of Justice on Northern Ireland. And will there be some compromise, you think, in the next 24 hours at their end or our end? Because it's not in anyone's interest for this to carry on. On fish? On fish, yeah. Well, we don't know exactly when the deadline is. Uh, Number 10 today wouldn't say exactly when they think the deadline is. And we don't know whether France will kind of march ahead with its threats immediately or whether there might be some talks going on at EU level uh, before that can happen. I suspect we we won't see all of the threats carried out uh, as suggested by France, but equally it's very hard to see that the UK is going to cave in on the fishing rights. Absolutely. As they say in the trade, Harriet, this one's going to run and run. That's Harriet Lyne, who's Chief Political Correspondent for the Daily Mail. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So workers in the United States have been quitting their jobs in droves for better paying jobs and higher quality, quite higher quality working culture in a trend that's been branded the big quit. Now, a survey conducted by employer benefits uh, provider Unum UK found a similar phenomenon is happening in the UK. And I wonder if it's all linked to the pandemic. Joining me now is Jeevan Sander, who's an economist at King's College London and was an official at the Treasury. Jeevan, um, is it because um, as many as we think in Britain, as many as 29% of people may be changing their job or already done so since the start of the pandemic? Is it because um, people working from home, they've seen things differently? To some extent, I mean, look, what we've seen is actually our economy is still smaller than it was before the pandemic began. Yeah. The reason why there are people still chasing so many jobs is because a million people have left the labour market. Now, a third of that is due to emigration, so probably people going back towards the European Union. But the other two thirds, people leaving the labour market, either becoming students or retiring early. So in one sense, it does that people have kind of looked at their lives and gone, actually, is this making me happy doing to reevaluate where I am in life? If you think specifically around trucking drivers, we've seen yeah. a lot of truck drivers leave during the pandemic. Yeah. They probably turned around and said, actually, I'm not very happy with where I am. Should I do something different with my life? Yeah, and I guess also if you were commuting into work and you've got to start commuting again, and maybe it's a 45, 50-minute, 60-minute commute one way and a commute back, and um, you'd been working from home you, and you are perhaps 60, 62, you might think to hell with it. Yeah, not if you're, back. you know, yeah, if you're in that position, right? Um, the more worrying concerns, there are quite a few also leaving from long-term sick as well, which is right. more concerning. But look, uh, yeah, it's certainly that people are like reevaluate their lives and have done over the past year and a half. For employers, it must be a, it must be concerning because it means they're losing good, experienced people. It is um, the trick for employers now. The response for employers really has to be to raise pay and make better conditions, basically to keep workers staying look you're in a different labor market now you know you're competing to hire people in one sense the bargaining power is moved to your potential employees so all you have to figure out is how do you make the workplace better for them so yes more pay and better conditions i mean there's some research out I mean, literally in the last hour which you know 40 percent of people are considering leaving their jobs in the next 12 months 40 percent and so that's quite a lot and the majority of those apparently don't have any or haven't been given any incentive to stay by their employees their employees have to make 
a better working environment to really keep their workers on. Well, what you're saying is music to the ears of the Prime Minister because he says one of the advantages post-Brexit Britain is uh, a more skilled skilled workforce and a better paid workforce. That's all great, but we're already seeing inf- pressures on inflation, Jeevan. Uh, wage inflation will add to that big time. Well, yeah, exactly right. So if you're just seeing higher wages in certain sets of the economy where no one's become more productive, well, that actually leads to this kind of price rises elsewhere, for example. So the fact that you're having to pay kind of trucking drivers so much more money Yes, they have more. They have high wage in that sector, but that's just pushing up prices across the economy. It's not actually making us any more productive. So, look, you have slightly higher wages, and some people do really well, but overall, simply higher prices. You actually do the hard work to get to that high wage, high skill economy. And it is interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, the Office of Budget Responsibility forecasts that unemployment is going to now peak at 5.2%. Mm. Uh, at the height of the pandemic, they thought it was going to hit 12%. So um, it is a market for people who want to look for new jobs. Yeah, and also like a very surprising development. To be honest, you know, there are still, I think, over a million people on furlough, around that number mm. towards the end of the scheme. Yeah. I mean, look, we were certainly expecting a bigger kind of increased unemployment that we haven't seen the final figures from the end but it doesn't look like anything we're seeing is suggesting this kind of rise in unemployment i think most of us were expecting what we've seen instead is actually people just leaving the labor market altogether which is slightly different so it's worth remembering yes unemployment is down but employment is also down because of that reason and are you staying put where you are at king's college or are you casting your eyes wider uh in the internet because it's it's that sort of market Oh, well, you know, academics is like a very different job market. It's still very much where, <laughs> you know, the parent very got hit with the employer. Uh, so at the moment, there are kind of immediate plans. Well, that means we know where to find you when we want to talk to you next. That's uh, Jeevan Sander, economist at King's College London, who was, of course, uh, a very senior official at the Treasury in his time. Thanks for joining us. Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood's here with the latest sports news. So, I have in front of me Nuno under pressure, but he's not under pressure, he's gone. I know. Have I pronounced his name right? You have. Well, yes, Nuno, yes. The Battle of the Managers. Tottenham versus Manchester United. We thought it was the Hobbits might be looking for a new job. A new job in New Zealand. But he won 3-0. Worst thing that's happened to Manchester United, that. Because means they're stuck with a useless manager. Well, that's very true. Now, I, I, very true in as much as you are right that I don't think that that, that one victory uh, means that everything is rosy in yeah. the Manchester United Garden. Then next weekend they play Manchester City. So oh. if they were to get... Mind you, they lost at home to Crystal Palace, who's Anna Reid to today on the in, telly. Indeed. she's a Crystal Palace fan. There were some strange results of the weekend. Right. There were some coupon busters, as we call yeah. them. So the fact that Liverpool didn't beat Brighton at home as well was a bit of a shock. You didn't mention Swindon winning away at Oldham. I do know that passed me by somehow. I hadn't got round to looking at the League Two. Blimey, aren't they doing well? Yeah. Um, But yes, Nuno's gone. So as you say, who is he? I've never heard of him. Well, he's Portuguese manager who was formerly the Wolves manager. Left Wolves at the end of well in the summer and uh, and took over the Tottenham job. Now that was was a bigger job for him then. Was he'd already left Wolves? Okay. He sort of felt like he'd come to the end of the road with Wolves and he left. He actually cited the fact that he wanted to spend some more time with his family, and then Tottenham came knocking. And he took the Tottenham job because, you know, so it was obviously a step up for him. But they, he was their fifth or sixth or seventh even choice because they got knocked back by all the other managers. Right. They, they tried like um, the Ajax manager, like Antonio Conte, mm. um, et cetera, et cetera. So they tried Pochettino even. They went back to get right. their old manager, Pochettino. So all these managers said no to Tottenham because they don't like, you know, potentially working with Daniel Levy. The club is a bit skint because it's still paying mm. back the stadium that it's just built, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of reasons why uh, they ended up with Nuno, who was their 
fifth, who, who turned out to be their sixth choice, but it never felt like a good fit. He right. was a pragmatic coach who plays uh, football on the break, really. That's what he did at Wolves, um, whereby your team sits in deep and then you uh, pl- try and play on the counter-attack. Well, right. at a club like Tottenham, when you take a step up to a bigger club, mm. the fans and the players want, want more of the ball. They want them to dominate, exactly. Mm. So this kind of negative approach um, wasn't, uh, wasn't popular with the Tottenham fans. And then on Saturday, it really turned pretty nasty and it's all happened very very quickly and they jeered Harry Kane well, and they jeered Harry Kane. Now, at the start of the season, Tottenham won their first three games of the season. They were top of the league. Were they really? He won Manager of the Month, Nuno, really? for Gosh. September, I believe. So he was... Rough, it's rough, It's like politics. It's a rough old business. And, yeah, and literally... And so we're 10 games into the, to the Premier League season. So after three, he was top of the league, Manager... So seven games later, they've sacked the man, seven, the man who was top of the... Seven games later, they've they sacked just him. Don't, they just don't persevere long enough. Well, and in that time they've lost, they've lost five and, and won two. So that you know they've lost fifty percent of their games, and that's not good enough for the Tottenham fans. I mean, it it, is, it has. I I think it's a bigger thing than just the fact that they mm. have. Well, even when they won the first three games of the season, they won them all one nil. They were very defensive in winning them. One of them was you know won by a late penalty. So it wasn't like they were playing right. front foot football. Yeah. So as much as the results, it's been the style of football. Um, and on Saturday when they went uh, when they were three nil down, it was very toxic in the stadium. As you say, they were booing Harry Kane. Uh, they were booing the manager, and they were singing about Daniel Levy, who is the um, who's the chairman, who they want out, and they don't think has invested. Properly since they got to a Champions League final, so it's all pretty toxic at Tottenham. They're now going for Antonio Conte again. Who does he? Put, who does he? he was, so he's free at the moment. He was a former Chelsea manager where he won the league with Chelsea. He's been in Italy. Uh, he is a how can we put it a combustible character. Right. Uh, he's a Just bit what in the you Jose, Chelsea. W- uh, yeah. Well, After he, Jose Mourinho. Well, he's in the jo- Well, exactly. He's in the Jose Mourinho mould. So whether mm. Tottenham are going to go back to this kind of slightly combustible character, but he's a very good coach. He's won things wherever he's been. So mm. uh, it will be interesting if they can get him. And if they do get him, they're going to have to give him what he wants, which is obviously what the stumbling block was last time. So that means a budget to buy players, etc., right. uh, etc. Et so fascinating, fascinating. And how long do we get? Well, it depends what happens to Manchester United. And I mean, if they get, if Manchester City whack them, yeah. he's in a lot of trouble, isn't he? Yeah, well, again, you see, then... then you see, we'll, but also, and if Tottenham might then get this manager, Conte, who Manchester United might have wanted. Well, Manchester United, exactly, would would have been... Some people would say, well, don't let Tottenham get him because he's yeah. just the sort of manager they Interesting. need. So it's all this sort of They could always bring back that curmudgeonly miserable Scott. Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah. Yeah, they could. He seems to be pretty hands-on as it is, so they might is as he? well. Yeah. yeah, oh, he's got a lot to do. He's on the board, mm. and he has a lot to do with uh, the hiring and firing that goes on at that club. You wouldn't want him hanging around, really. Well, this a lot of people think this is one of the problems that Solskjaer's had. Yeah. This great manager is still very present, very visible, mm. um, and is still there. And, you know two schools of thought either you would lean on him for advice because he's seen it done it got the t-shirt or you need to make a clean break and mm. move in your own direction you can just imagine when the phone co- the phone rings and it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's Ferguson on the phone and, and it's, Ollie what's his face thinks oh god mm. another lecture right. an- another another bruising telling off I was going to use the word beginning with B you know the one I mean I do now the hammers are flying that's West Ham who did uh, they beat meanwhile West Ham who were managed by of course David Moyes who was previously the manager of Manchester United badly where he was kicked out yeah, after yeah, a very yeah. short space of time he is he is uh, doing a great job at West Ham right. who are now up to fourth in the league okay. level on points with Manchester City yeah. uh, great season they beat Aston Villa smashed Aston Villa 4-1 yesterday mm. um, and it's 
just a great story because he's got this team playing really good football, very good to watch. And of course, as I say, he had such a torrid time at Man United. They're struggling. He's now in charge of West Ham. This is his second stint at West Ham as well. He he had one uh, go there where he saved him from relegation. Then they went somewhere else. Then they've gone back to him, and he's got some of these players performing brilliantly, and they're last. and they're flying up the league, and they're doing it while they're playing in the Europa League. Now everyone right. said, "Oh, well, West Ham haven't got a big enough squad to right. cope in midweek yeah. European football and to do it at the weekend." Well, they're proving everyone wrong. Now the best part of this uh, sports chat today, you were absolutely right. We were going to beat the Australians in the twenty twenty. World Cup, World yeah. Cup, yeah. and we knocked them off the park. We absolutely hammered them. It was a joy to watch. Really? Um, oh yeah. I mean, we we limited them to a very small score um, of just over a hundred uh, right. with some superb bowling. Yeah. Um, and then Joss Butler, who is without doubt the world's best T20 batsman, came mm. out and blasted seventy runs off about thirty balls. Uh, ex- extraordinary uh, performance um, to actually hammer them, um, the Aussies. Um, to put us in prime position we're playing Sri Lanka as we speak to see uh, which will pretty much put us into the semi-finals if we win um, but it was really good always good as you know to get Beating one the over Aussies, the Aussies yeah. uh, and I, I know it's not the same format and I know it's completely irrelevant but, but with the ashes around the corner you for the ashes. yeah exactly it's always might, nice might Australia not if we get through to the semis might Australia not get through to the semis they could do uh, yeah if they're second in our group or you know overtake us in our group they could be the other team who go through to the semis in our group mm. um, so but what's the last four look like so well the, in, in one half of it it's looking like it's going to be New Zealand and Pakistan and India are going to go out because New Zealand beat India yesterday so that's a big upset the fact right. that India might yeah. not get through to the last yeah. four and then the other half it's looking like it would either it would be England and then um, probably Australia or South Africa. We England play South Africa on Saturday. Mm. Uh, they're quite good, aren't they? They're quite good. They've had the Quinton de Kock kneeling debacle in the background, which we haven't talked about, have uh, we not? No, he, well, he, 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 he said refused. he wouldn't take the knee, but then he did. Yeah, he refused for one game and was dropped or dropped himself and then came back and said, all right, I'll do it then, but I don't like being told what to do. I'm with these footballers in this country, so what's the point of taking it? It doesn't change anything. It's it's just a complete gesture politics. It's the worst sort of virtue signalling. Well, that was his take on it. And also he didn't like to be told what to do because Mm. he thought it's freedom of of expression and I can do, you know, I can make my own choice. That that former Liverpool player, I interviewed him uh, on a radio show on LBC, John Barnes, and he wouldn't take the knee because he said it achieves nothing. The FA is run by white men. Uh, there's one Premier League manager who's not white. Uh, and um, uh, he said it's, it's still a white man's, rich, white man's sport. I, yeah, well, I can see his point. But then if you talk to Micah Richards, our columnist, mm. uh, the sports male columnist, he says it should still happen. People should still take the knee because every time you do it, somebody just might think, well, why are they doing that? And then you have a conversation about it. Mm. And it's better than not doing it and brushing it under the carpet. So, Well, I wouldn't take the knee. Well, there you go. Would you? <laughs> I would, yeah. Okay, there, there we are. We often agree and disagree, <laughs> and, uh, and I know so little about sport. That's Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood, and I'm dragging him into the political arena, which is not an area he likes to talk about particularly. <laughs> That's my area. Uh, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. So the government's announced £850 million of funding for museums and galleries, and one of the projects lined up is for a waterfront attraction in Liverpool dedicated to, who else, of course, the Fab Four, the Beatles. I'm joined by David Bedford, who's a Beatles historian and author of Liddy Paul, Birthplace of the Beatles. David, um, you must be chuffed to bits. I know there's already various things in on Merseyside for the Beatles, but this is yet another attraction. Well, the Beatles are so much 
part of, of Liverpool's history, of our culture. And if there's anything new going to come to attract even more people to come to Liverpool, then yeah, all for it, definitely. Now, it's going to be a, a waterfront attraction. What sort of thing do you think sh- it should be, uh, David? Um, it, it's a tricky one because down by the waterfront, we've already got um, the Beatles story experience. Yeah. Which is at a museum. The British music experience is there already. Um, and then, of course, nearby, you've got the cavern, you've got the Liverpool Beatles Museum. There's various things already there, so it's got to be something that's, that's different. Because down by the waterfront, we've got um, the Beatles statues, which have been there for like um, about, about three, four years now. Yeah. By the cavern, which is a, in a very, very popular place. Um, tourists to go and have their pictures taken, etc. Right. Um, so there's not a lot of room down there if it's going to be just a specific Beatles attraction. But after um, eyebrows were raised after the, the Chancellor obviously announced, we got a little bit more information came, um, and it's not just oh here's a look back uh, at the Beatles and history. There's going to be a lot more to it. So they're putting some plans together at the moment, and it seems to be embracing the music and the history of the Beatles, but also the other music in Liverpool, like the Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, for example, but partnering with the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, which is like a fame school that Paul McCartney set up, and they're wanting to sort of embrace all of the music, because obviously there's so much more than just the Beatles. Think of all the bands that came through, like in the, in the 80s and the 90s, etc. So trying to embrace all of that, but do something that looks forward as well, which maybe can uncover the next Lennon, the next McCartney. Why do you think there is still this enduring fascination with the Fab Four, David? They haven't recorded, made a new record for a very long time. We've just seen ABBA, of course. They've, they're going to have their um, hologram <laughs> concert next year but they've just released their first new music since what 1982 1983 why why what what is it about the beatles uh, you know it, it's one that fascinates me um unless we get you know thousands and thousands of, of fans come here every year um at part time I, I do tour guiding as well and i get to meet fans from all over the world and there is something that the beatles created back in the 60s that was so new and I think one of the things this new attraction will, will probably pick up on is that it was a, a mutual cultural change that happened you know they were the first sort of guitar band like that and they were the first at so many different things that everything else even the bands that start today somehow they will have the Beatles to thank because of what they did they just transformed the way popular music um, was recorded the the way bands appeared. You know, we had the mania that went with it, the merchandise that went with it, the world tours, all these things that they were the first to do. And I think we're now seeing, and I get to see so many of these, those first generation Beatles fans who will do a trip of a lifetime and they'll come and spend a few days in Liverpool. And the nice thing from my point of view is that they come and they discover all these great Beatles attractions, but they fall in love with the city as well which has so much to offer. Indeed. If, Dave, if there was, um, as a Beatles historian, is there one of your favourite stories you could tell us about the Beatles, which perhaps people listening to this podcast might not have heard? You must have so many at your fingertips. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly have. My favourite one is, without 
a lad called Ivan Bourne, um, we would never have had the Beatles. Now, Ivan was a friend of John's from about the age of five. And Ivan was very, very clever. As John was, John was a very intelligent lad. He was a year younger than John. They went to Dovedale Primary School together. When it went to, to grammar school, John went off to Quarry Bank, where he formed his first group, the Quarrymen. He had such a bad reputation among parents. He was known as Vat Lennon. Um, but Ivan's parents didn't want him to go to the same school as Vat Lennon. So instead, they sent him to another one called the Liverpool Institute in the city centre. He ends up in a class with the boy born on the same day as him, and that was Paul McCartney. No. Ivan and Paul become friends, and it's Ivan who brings Paul to meet John at the Walton Fate. If it hadn't been for Ivan, John and Paul had nothing in common. How interesting. So, so, yeah, it's it's an amazing coincidence. And is he still around, Ivan? Sadly, no. Um, He developed Parkinson's disease, uh, and he died many, many years ago. Um, which is very published a book and was featured in a, a documentary as well about living with Parkinson's disease. Right. Um, but he stayed a good friend with both John and Paul. Well, it's a terrific story, and it's one I certainly didn't know, and I suspect people listening to this didn't know either. Well, that's why we talked to you. That's David Bedford, Beatles historian, author of Liddy Paul, Birthplace of the Beatles, talking about the new £2 million visitor attraction that's going to go down there on the Liverpool waterside, which will honour in some way the Fab Four. Well, that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app every weekday at 5pm. You can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.